Now, I, I don't know if any of you have uh, had this sort of experience that I'm about to relate, but let me share it and we'll see. Imagine that you've heard about this fantastic new restaurant that serves your favourite sort of food. Now, this, this is just a representative photo. That doesn't have to be your favourite sort of food. Just imagine your favourite sort of food. And it's, it's not too expensive either. So you make a booking to go along with your family or your friends... And it's, it's so good. It's such a good restaurant that you've got a book weeks ahead. You've been looking forward to this for ages. You turn up at the restaurant. Your party's all dressed up and ready to enjoy themselves. But at the door, the maitre d' looks you up and down and says, I'm sorry, but you can't come in because you're not wearing a tie or if you're a woman because you're not wearing a dress. I don't know about you... But I would be tempted to say, what does a tie or a dress have to do with me or my fellow diners enjoying a good meal? It seems completely unfair to place restrictions on participation that have nothing to do with the essence of that thing. Now that just may be a North Queensland attitude, I don't know, but it seems like a crazy sort of thing to me. The essence of a restaurant is is eating, right? It's not prancing around showing off how wealthy, good-looking or nimble you are. Now, I might have given away my feeling towards balls there, but anyway. So has anyone had a similar experience where you've been denied access to some, something with a requirement that has nothing to do with it? Exactly. Tim was embarrassed when we went to a, a, a bowls club, right? A bowls club, of all things... And he was walking around with his cap on and some guy got up and said, hat, hat, got very offended. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I, so my friends went to yeah. the hotel like, a while ago and um, I got like, a feminine hat on. You know, I dressed up with hat and I was taking my hat off. It was so bad. <laughs> yeah, they really shame you. Graham? So when I was in medical school, um, my dad went to the lecture there, along with a lot of the other doctors that he used to stand at the lecture door and not let you in, he didn't have a tie on. <laughs> to a lecture? Yep. And in fact, I used to carry on running my pockets, so if I bumped into him in the lids, I'd pop Right. <laughs> so you can see that there's lots of... Our world is full of this sort of crazy denial... And our Bible passage today is about how God removed a restriction that no longer related to the essence of a relationship with him. And we're going to just read the last part of this story in Acts 10. So first, let's, let's just come up to speed with some background. This is a, a photo of what is supposedly Simon the Tanner's house, but since it's only been labelled as Simon the Tanner's house for the last century or so, you know... It's a nice thought. It is in, in Jaffa, which is now called, uh, which was back then called Joppa. Oops, looks like I. It's very small. There's not very many houses there, so it's. Yeah, I looked at it on Google Google Street View, and it's down a down an alleyway, and there's another house next to it, and all sorts of stuff. You've been there. It's only a few houses there, so it's not that one. It's Joppa's a tiny question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the apostle. 
So what's, what's happened before our Bible reading? The Apostle Peter, who's still effectively the main leader of the church, is up in Joppa for some reason. Uh, Christians must still be under a bit of persecution at this time because he's staying at a tanner's house, which, which would have been out of town, partly because tanner's places stink, but also because faithful Jews could avoid the unclean bodies of dead animals that were part of the stock and trade of a tanner. But that's where Peter's staying. And while he's there, he goes up to the roof for a bit of private time in the middle of the day. He's feeling hungry for some reason. And suddenly, while he's praying, he sees the heavens open up. And Peter would have recognised this, the heavens opening up, as an indicator that he's about to receive some important information from God. Down comes this sheet full of clean and unclean animals and a voice that Peter recognises as Jesus, it seems. He calls him Kyrios, Lord, tells him to eat. But Peter says he's too good a Jew for that. He has never and will never eat unclean or common food. But Jesus says, what God has made clean, do not call common This happens three times in a row, just in case Peter didn't get the message the first time. And after the third time, he's still sitting there puzzled, wondering what's going on, when the Holy Spirit tells him that three guys have come to collect him and he should go with them. These three guys have been sent by a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who lives in Caesarea, which is 60 kilometres up the coast from Joppa. This guy and his whole household was actually a faithful follower of Yahweh who gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly. A couple of days before, he had been praying and God had told him, actually sent an angel, to say to send these these three men to Joppa to collect Peter. Now, fortunately, both Cornelius and Peter listened to God And so Peter ends up at Cornelius' place in Caesarea, a Gentile home. While Cornelius has, for his part, invited a whole bunch of people to hear whatever it is that Peter has to say. And after he's explained the situation to Peter, it becomes very clear to Peter what it is that he's there to say. And so let's read the Bible. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for all the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us 
whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were like we were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. What an amazing story, eh? After thousands of years of exclusive relationships based on family lineage, first with the line of Seth, Adam and Eve's third son, then with Noah, then with Abraham, then with Jacob and his descendants, God is finally opening up his chosen people to everyone in the world. Now, it's important to recognise a key feature of Peter's vision here. Peter saw a sheep full of unclean and clean animals, yet he refused to kill and eat any. Why didn't he obey God's command by killing and eating a clean animal? Sorry? It's, yeah, that they were considered common. So Peter calls them common. And this idea of the word common used this way is actually a Pharisaical comment, uh, Pharisaical concept, uh, which came about in the century before Jesus. And Jesus actually encountered this in Mark 7. So we know what Jesus thought about this because the Pharisees confronted him with this in Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Now, that word unclean there is actually the word common. It's just translated unclean because that's how English translators do stuff. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat it would sound weird to us if it said, you know, they ate bread with common hands. So the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles and dining couches. So this was a Pharisaical um, concept where the word common had come to indicate this idea. Remember that the Torah taught that an unclean dead body could pass on its uncleanness to someone who touched it. And so the idea was that this, this uncleanness could carry on and 
So there was this category of common things, which you can see in the middle there. Um, the, the, the things that are marked there as clean, see how in the middle there's ones that aren't defiled and aren't holy, but they're still clean. They became common because you couldn't really be sure about them. And if you wanted to keep yourself clean, then you wouldn't touch these common things either. And so the clean animals in the sheep, in Peter's vision, as um, Stephen Robin said, would have been contaminated by the unclean animals, and so they would have become common. And of course, Gentiles fell into this category. Gentiles were not unclean necessarily, but they weren't clean either. They hadn't gone through this sanctification process of the Jewish rituals. So they were common and people wouldn't associate with them. Jews wouldn't even go into a Gentile house because they didn't know how the Gentiles were treating things and they could be unclean and they could have passed on that uncleanness. So they were common. Jesus had already explained his position on this immediately after his run-in, which we just read about, with the scribes and Pharisees. Later in Mark 7, this is what Jesus says. Jesus called the crowd to him to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he just used. Well, that's so hard, so hard to understand. Don't you understand either, he asked. Jesus obviously felt like me. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Jesus, of course, is, is here pointing to the nature of our relationship with God. Whether we are God's people or not, it's, it is our heart's orientation that makes the difference. It's not the things that we do that make our hearts pure, whether it's eating certain foods or even getting baptised or going to church. Rather, we do these things. We get baptised, we come to church, we love one another in many ways because our hearts are pure. But how do our hearts become pure? That's the essence of our faith, of our Christianity, and that's why Peter tells Cornelius and his family and friends about Jesus. As Peter says, and this is the last sentence of Peter's final sermon in the record of Acts, so this is his last uh, 
sermon point, right? So it might be worth paying attention to. He says, Jesus is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Jesus is the one that God's word points to. We don't gain pure hearts and so become God's children by keeping ourselves apart, by doing the right thing, by avoiding common things. Rather, it's ongoing belief in Jesus that purifies our hearts. Faith in his name sets us free from sins. Accepting Jesus as the Lord of our lives is what rescues us from our rebellion against God. That's it. We don't need to be wearing a tie or a dress. We don't need to tick off some list of activities, not be wearing a hat. We don't need to recite some creed. We just need to make Jesus our Lord. But how do we, as Jesus' disciples, his followers gathered together, how do we make sure that we get this right. Now Peter was not told in his vision to call unclean things clean. He was told not to call things that God had made clean, common things, unclean. So that's what he was told. What God has made clean do not call common. How do we make sure that we understand the essence of faith? That we don't confuse unclean things with merely common or even clean things. After all, Jesus did warn us again again in, in Matthew 7, Mark 7, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. We can't come to Jesus and expect to remain unchanged. If you look at many of these things, that Jesus says make us unclean, it's actually a bit scary when you think about how many of these things our society values or at least considers acceptable. Things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, greed, deceit, lustful desires, envy, pride, all of these things our society calls good. And yet Jesus calls these vile things. So it's quite easy for fallen humanity to get confused over what is clean and unclean, what's pure and what's vile. I think there are three things that we need to do to allow people to come to Christ without barriers while preserving the essence of salvation. But I'm not going to tell you. No, I am going to tell you. (laughs) I think the first thing is we need to recognise that we're all born with impure, sinful hearts and that we all struggle with bodies that still yearn to sin. When the rich young ruler approached Jesus to ask him how, he got to, how to get to heaven, he called Jesus good teacher. 
What was Jesus' response? Does anyone remember? Yep, why not? No. No, he had another reason. That's right, yep. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus said, I know that if I was just a man, I'm not good. And you would know that too. So basically, it's sort of, it's a funny way, isn't it, of Jesus saying, hey, I'm God. Because he doesn't say, don't call me good teacher. This is the one teacher you can call good. If we remember that this is a struggle, that this sin, not being good, is a struggle that we all share, then we can have a posture of compassion rather than judgment. Because because we've all been there. We, We actually are all still there to some extent or another. We're all struggling with sin. And so it's critical that we understand that we're all fallen human beings and we all struggle with bodies of sin, with our fleshly desires. The second thing is to focus on Jesus. One of the problems with the human heart is that it wants to be in control. That's why most religions place us in control. We have to work to appease or please the gods or God. We must seek to find our true self. We must define our own identity or whatever. But the Jesus of the Bible doesn't let us do that. He says weird things like this. In, in John, uh, I think it's 16, Jesus says, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, right? We all know that verse, right? How about this one? John, so it's John 6, that he sa- John 6 that he says that in. Later on in John 6, he says, The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. How come that's not a popular verse for us to quote? Yeah, yeah this is not popular because it's humbling. This is saying, it's not up to you. And we need to remember that. This is, Jesus used that, that was when Jesus chased away all those people in the Gospel of John. Just after this verse it says, many of his disciples left him. And he turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave me too? Finally, we need to recognise who our real family are. Jesus gave us to one another for, to care for each other, to look after each other. He knew, he knows how hard it is to live as his follower. So he made sure to create a support structure for us. And the church is not just an institution, a social club or a force for change. Listen to what he said to his disciples. In Mark 10, Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Peter was always boastful. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property 
along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. So if we give these things up, that's the first step, we, we, we will receive, Jesus promises, this is one of those promises that you probably won't find in a promise box in its fullness. You will receive now, not in heaven, a hundred times as many homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and property even. Although property might be like this. Here you go. Here's a nice little property for you to come and worship God. This is a home for you to come and dwell in. And in the world... and. Um, <clears throat> That's, that's actually the reality of our lot in this world. Overwhelming family. If we give up family, we get overwhelming family and persecution. That's the, that's the bonus. And it is true. It is true. When I gave up my family, even though I wasn't a missionary, but, you know... I was overseas. I trusted God with his direction. And that's all he asks of us. I, I've been around the world and wherever I go, I find my family in Christ, my brothers and sisters. And much to Italia's annoyance, she's not here to confirm this, but she would if she was, we can stay with Christian brothers and sisters and enjoy fellowship with them all over the world. It's a wonderful thing. It's amazing. And yes, we do receive persecution of all sorts of kinds as Christians. And it's going to increase. So thanks to God's wonderful rescue plan, we can come to Jesus from any nation or culture. We need only recognise that we are sinful creatures Focus on Jesus and embrace our new family. And Jesus will work a wonderful transformation. That's what we see the very beginning of in Acts chapter 10. And we live in that reality now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to break down the barriers between sinful humanity and you, our creator. We thank you that we can come to you and receive new, clean hearts. We thank you that you've given us your word to show us Jesus and, and to guide us into this new life. And we thank you for the gift of one another, our new super extended family. Help us to value all these things and to press into them with enthusiasm and commitment. Help us to place you as number one in our lives. In our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond now in worship.